Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Welcome to IRC Book Club. So today on the show, we've got Mark Petruzzi and Paul, is it Melchiore? Melchiore, Italian. JJ, yes. Italian. I got it almost right. And they are the authors of Selling the Cloud, which we have been reading on Book Club this week. And guys, I'll tell you what I want to start with today. So I've just put a poll on LinkedIn. We were talking about authenticity this morning when we were reading through the book and we recorded the first show. Mike, have you seen the poll I put on LinkedIn this morning? Yes, yes. I've got to say, before Jonathan says this, guys, when you listen to mine and Johnny's review of it, what I find interesting about the books is sometimes you can review them and like you wish through it in an hour. We were talking about some points out of this for ages. Yeah. Not necessarily agreeing with you or disagreeing (laughs) to you, a bit bit of both, but it was a fascinating sort of conversation. So sorry, Johnny. So basically, guys, when we were reading through the book, one of the things that really caught us, and I thought it would be a good start for the show, was this whole concept of authenticity. And, And, you know, Mike and I, we looked at your backgrounds. You both clearly have top sales careers. You know, if you were candidates tomorrow looking for jobs, we'd be pretty pleased you'd turned up as candidates And I put this post on LinkedIn. I'll just give you a quick idea of it. It says, a cheesy, slimy salesman just discussed this on the Book Club podcast. Modern sales training and sales thinking tells us we shouldn't be salespeople anymore. Everybody is a helper or a trusted advisor. And I wonder if this, I'm in sales, but I'm not a salesperson identity that many people are so desperate to cultivate has become the new cheese and slime in itself. Could it actually be more cheesy and more slimy than a polished, well-groomed, unashamed salesperson in a Porsche with loads of aftershave on, a sunbed tan, and a Rolex who knows exactly why he's in the room. Maybe that's actually more honest, more authentic, and more respectful of the customer than the liar in the hoodie and the trainers with the fake job title who is there to help. What do you guys reckon? Well, it's had a reaction, to say the least. And what we've got is 67% of people, if you met them in a pub and asked them what they did for a living, would say they were a salesperson. 6% would say they were a trusted advisor. 14% they would say they were a helper. And 13% would say other. So what we've got, fellas, is 33%, and this is 250 votes and 10,000 views in, so it's reasonable data. 33% of salespeople wouldn't want to refer to themselves as a salesperson. How nuts is that? Um... So there is, you know, in the book, our approach is not to guide salespeople to represent themselves as not being salespeople. And even though I've worked very closely with the, kind of the founder of the phrase trusted advisor, and that's Charlie Green, who wrote Trusted Advisor and Trust Based Selling. Um, Charlie and I kind of collaborated on that back at a firm called the Mac Group, a Harvard-based firm, 20-plus years ago. And, you know, I was the the young sales rep at the time working with him because Charlie, as amazing as he is, never really sold in his career, but he wanted to write a book on selling. So right from the beginning, I don't like the term trusted advisor. I don't like – well, I love the term. I love where Charlie went with all this. The idea is not to make up new names for what you do. You're a salesperson and you should define yourself as that. But you don't have to act like a salesperson all the time. 
And part of it is, you know, to your point, there are some people that when they get in sales, all they're looking to do is make more money. And by doing that, you're not going to be able to follow the tenants in, you know, our book, Selling the Cloud, because you have to have a bigger and better why for why you're doing it than just to make money. But simple response is it's not about changing a name. It's not about calling sales different than what it is. And if you're a salesperson, you should define yourself as a salesperson. Paul, I'll hand over to you to go a little deeper. Yeah. Hey, Mark, I simplify things because I'm a simple person because, you know, way back I was supposed to be a lawyer, went to college. And then, you know, when I went into sales, my mom was all originally upset because she thought I was going to be a lawyer and now a salesman, you know. So that was uh, a tough one. But uh, I would make up these titles district manager or whatever it was. And so then I realized early on in my career, there was a gentleman by the name of Gabe Zolna. I don't even know if he's alive. I haven't talked to him in probably 30, 40 years, but he was um, peddling hardware with me at MAI Basic 4 back in the 80s. And he drive up in his convertible 911 Porsche. And he was probably the most flamboyant sales guy. We have big Rolex watch, just like you described. And I always thought like, God, if the customers see him, they're going to be all upset. You know, I'm going to drive in in my little car, I'm going to park it in the back so they don't see it. And Gabe getting in an argument one time with a customer who said he didn't want to deal with him because he was too flamboyant. He says, okay, well, I'll call back to the office. I'll find some kid out of school who's unsuccessful and I'll transfer your account to that person. <laughs> and so that never left me after all these years is that, look, don't be ashamed of the profession. It's a great profession, and I'm happy that 67% of the folks, you know, are happy with it. But it doesn't mean you have to be a bad salesperson or live up to maybe some of the negative connotations about the profession, which is why I think, which is amazing that you guys argued for hours over authenticity, because for me, you know, in these large enterprise sales processes, they figure this stuff out pretty quick, whether or not you're adding value or not. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to be authentic because you won't really get a second chance. To that. Yeah. And I think sometimes being authentic is being authentically a salesperson. Correct. Yes. Do you know what's interesting, actually? So I'm quite old school. I'm bang up for a bit of canvassing saying, hello, my name is. And just recently I've been saying to people, hello, my name is Marty Bar. So this is a sales call. I'm calling to canvass you. Yeah, I see it. And then just leaving a silence. And what's interesting about that is that when you set off in that way, the clients are perfectly happy. I agree. They're perfectly happy with it. They know what's coming. You know, what am I going to do? I'm going to try and twist their arm to deal with my company. Obviously, if I get in there and I do a bad job, then you're out. Well, that's the case, isn't it? You just got to get through the door. And then if you do a bad job, you get kicked out the door again, obviously. Yeah. Now, something else of contention, I've been flicking through my iPad trying to find it, but there's this thing about not closing people. Come on, I just didn't buy that at all. I just thought that's nonsense, really. And you referenced some huge companies, Salesforce, Cisco, whoever it might be. And I think in the smaller companies, which is where a lot of the salespeople actually live, that's a very dangerous thing to write in a sales book. So just tell me what about that, please. Dangerous in as much as it can be misinterpreted, I think, is the point. Yeah, well... Yeah, anything in a book can be misinterpreted. But Michael, I'll hand this back to you in one sentence. So what do you define as closing someone? I define every component of getting agreement as closing someone. Okay, that's, that's perfect. 
So, and every component, give me a couple examples of what needs to happen before it close. Ah, well, you've got to get multi-stages of agreement. You've got to get agreement to see you, agreement to pass you through to somebody else, get some information, all of those various pieces of agreement, I think. Yep. Perfect. So, yeah, and that's where we went with that statement in the book, that closing is not just about putting pressure on someone and asking them over and over again, will you buy from me or, you know, are you ready to sign? It's about doing everything that needs to be done as a good sales rep so that there's nothing else the, the prospect can ask for or do other than two things, either buy your product and sign the contract or tell you they're not buying it, or you help them to get to a point where you can tell them and say, you know what, you're not ready to buy. And, you know, from my productivity standpoint and everything else, I, I will be back to you. I will stay close. And when you're ready to buy, I'll be there. But you're not ready to buy right now. That's what we meant by never close. Because, you know, the, the, the whole concept of putting all this energy into backing a, a prospect into a corner and just asking them the deal is, I think, there's a lot of lost productivity in, in that energy. Yeah. Okay. But actually, in many respects, therefore, the concept really is always be closing. Oh, it's, it's exactly right. But what a lot of people don't realize is that always be closing means at the end of your first call, did you close to get an appointment? At the end of the appointment, did you close with the client to say, okay, we've talked about the following things in this appointment, Mr. Client. These are the things we've covered. We talked about that. Are you okay that we can cover that? Yes or no? Are you okay we can cover that? Yes or no? So that you're not sat at the end of the process going, can I have the deal? Because you already know you've got the deal. Exactly. And just as Michael very articulately described when I asked him that question, it's every step is about closing. And every step is about making sure that everything is done, that you've done your job as a sales rep, and that there's nothing else that can be done other than buy or delay. And in my belief, there's too much in sales where sales reps are trying to sell individuals that aren't ready to buy. And, you know, if you keep trying to close somebody who's not ready, or frankly, is just not going to buy from you, well, there's a lot more productive things you could do as a sales rep than that. And that was, that was the point. It was more of a, an attention getter. And I understand your point that, you know, that could be misconstrued, but Unfortunately, when you write a book, there's lots that can be construed in different ways. Yeah. The idea was to get people excited about the idea. I've got to say, on that note, it's a segue into something that you did say, which I thought was absolutely should be said to every seller that's in sales, which is about concentrating on the pipeline. I think that was absolutely right on the money for me. Yeah. Speaking of the pipeline, Michael, I, I can't disagree more. And, you know, think about this. Uh, I, I love the ABC thing because that reminds me of back in the day, always be closing. And I think if you're not doing that, then when you think about your pipeline, uh, and I'm sure you guys know the answer to this, the number one competitor when you go through that funnel is no decision. It's not your biggest competitor. It's no decision. And why is it no decision? And I always look at analyzing the pipeline in so many different ways, but I always think that people weren't doing that closing process along the role you know, of the cycle and, and then they get towards the end and they're trying to close a deal that really shouldn't be closed, as Mark was mentioning. And it, it really comes down to the quality of the pipeline. Have you done all the right steps through the process? 
so that when you sit down with the client, I do agree, you know, when it comes to closing, the best salespeople work jointly with their prospects on a closing plan. Because if you've done all the right things up to that step, the person who wants to buy may or may not be the economic buyer, may not have the power to write the check, but they definitely want to buy your stuff. So what is the plan to get it done? And hopefully put them on your side during that process. But, um, you know, I, I think the ABC rule is simplistic, but always be closing. In terms of this book, then, the book is called Selling the Cloud, A Playbook for Success. Just talk to me about why it's called Selling the Cloud. You know, I, from our perspective, it's selling the cloud because the last 15 years of all of my career, it's been about selling SaaS software. You know, I was very early into the Salesforce.com ecosystem. Paul moved his companies, uh, even Ariba, after bringing it public and then selling it to SAP, worked really hard to move that into a subscription model as well. So that's the baseline for selling the cloud. And the model's different, guys. I think, you know, coming from, and I think Mark and I both lived in both worlds, and there was a titanic shift. And, you know, I'll give Benioff all the credit because he created the cloud. Although I thought when I was selling ADP, I'm glad you've said that. I absolutely 100% agree with that. Although I think when I was selling ADP payroll back in the early 80s, I thought that was the cloud, but it wasn't called the cloud. It was just a mainframe in Clifton, New Jersey that uh, processed everything. And, you know, there is a, a big difference, I think, in the approach, the selling motion, and how you operate when you're selling a large one-time purchase, like in the early SAP days uh, of perpetual software, or even the early Ariba days, versus today's environment where everything is on a subscription model, you know, renewals are so important, customer success is so important, all these things that we now know to be part of the selling process, not just the initial sale, but the ongoing customer relationship is so different when it comes to SaaS-based or subscription software, cloud software, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, I guess there was a lot of titles already taken, so we figured this was a good one. Do you think it's easier now in the days of cloud selling versus the days of capital sale? That's a great question, Johnny. I think some parts are easier today, but some parts are even more difficult. I think back then there was a one-time large transaction, so there was no land and expand strategy. So you had to do everything to get a big upfront deal. So I think that was in some ways a little harder because the cycles were more challenging and more difficult. I think today the difference is you're competing against so many other alternatives that can land and expand and get in the side door, the back door, and build this momentum with some product-led growth area. So you, you can wind up doing all this work and some competitor come out of nowhere and hit you on the side door and already have hundreds of users up and running for in a freemium model, if you will. So I think there's some things that are easier and, and some things that are absolutely you know, more complicated. Well, I think the biggest part is that it's different. And one of the things that's been incredible for me is watching, you know, I, I have been on the consulting side of a lot of the years of my career. And Paul and I, when I was a director at Deloitte and he was at Ariba or SAP before that, we would partner and coordinate on these deals. And really one of the reasons we decided to write the book is because we had these incredible vantage points from my perspective to work with some of the most amazing CROs on the planet before we even had title of CRO. And I got to see someone like Paul totally involved in everything he does and, and what he would focus on in building a team. 
And that's really what drove the book. I mean, Paul had a team and know how to be a gunslinger when gunslinging was what you needed to do to be successful. And then he, he looked at this and saw the cloud and saw these longstanding relationships that needed to be built. And he hired in a very different way and he hired different people. So really the premise of selling the cloud, a lot of these concepts were built up in the consulting sales space where you were selling a very complex relationship, a very complex implementation. And, you know, and if you looked at us selling in consulting sales 20 years ago versus software sales at that point, it was a very different process. The beauty in all this, and I think the beauty in the book, is the processes today are very, very similar. And the reasons why some sales reps are successful and some of Paul's peers 15 and 20 years ago are not successful any longer in ways that he continues to be so successful. That's the difference, it's evolving to the new sales process that's necessary. So the processes are similar. My question to you is, which salesmen are better? If we could get a sales guy who was at his peak 35 in the mid 80s and I get him now, bring him forward to 35 years old. This is a little bit like sport. It's like I, I watch rugby, right? And I watch Leeds Rhinos Rugby League. And my father always says, we go to the game and we sit in the stadium and my dad says, the game's not what it was. These guys are just muscle-bound hulks. Game was played by men back in the 70s. It was a much tougher sport. They were better then. They were more skillful, right? And it's very easy to say, well, they were better sales guys in the 80s when it was capital equipment or, or you had to get an upfront perpetual license deal for two, three, four, 10, 15 million. Now it's just a puppy dog sale. All you've got to do is let the client trial the products. It's easy to configure. If your software's any good, it'll sell itself. So from which era are the salesmen the best? I'm going to write my answer down on a bit of paper and hold it up. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know what, Michael? There is no right answer to that. And I love, Johnny, when you were talking about the rugby, uh, you know, we just have in Philadelphia Eagles football, American football, not real football. But, you know, yeah, we got this guy, Mylata. He's an Australian rugby player. He's like 6'10", 300 pounds and runs a 4840. Yeah. So I don't know where your dad was playing, but I would not want to be tackling this guy. So <laughs> I think like anything else, selling evolves, right? And one of the biggest mistakes, I'm going to say guys my age and, and I'm old, do is they go from one company to another, they take their playbook that they were successful with at SAP or Oracle or IBM or wherever it was, and they, you know, cut and paste, and they put the new name of the company on the playbook, and they literally get fired after six months. So there is kind of a big difference, I think, in the, the era that we're playing in, just like that example on the rugby where the players are bigger, faster, and all that. Uh, it's just different, you know, and it's hard to compare. And I'm sure there was some amazing sales reps 35 years ago. I actually think our profession has evolved. I mean, I think these kids today are just so much smarter. I mean, I just see it in my own kids, that stuff they're learning in school. They're better prepared. I mean, we talk about being prepared and hustle in the book. And you'd be surprised how many reps show up at meetings and are not prepared for the meeting. You know, where some of these kids today, they'll say to me, yeah, I've read the, um, the 10K cover to cover. I've listened to every earnings call in the past, you know, six quarters. And they're going on their first call with the client. They probably know more about the client than the person you're talking to at the client's office. So 
I think you could look at it both ways. I think today, the, the, you know, we didn't have really sales training back then, 35 years ago. So I think, you know, today the folks are better. Now, the challenge is there's way more of them and there's way more companies. So the talent is a little diluted. But I think some of the best sales folks now are probably better than the ones 35 years ago. I liked your answer there. I'm going to refer back to your book, actually. But somewhere in the book, and I'm going to paraphrase you terribly, which I apologize for. It's okay. <laughs> you've said something about learning how to prospect is a vital tool for a salesperson. I think the current crop of young salespeople entering the market, they don't have that skill. And for me, prospecting is actually old school. Hello, my name is. It's not sat behind automated software. Ooh, that's a good one. I, I like that. Here's the problem. If I had 35 SDRs or BDRs or phone canvassing folks working for me back then, I'd be a crappy prospector today too. We've spoiled these kids. I mean, that's the problem. Yes. We, we've spoiled them. And, you know, I, I think about the first couple of days I went back to Anapar, where I worked at Anaplane, mm. and within a very short time period, I'm the interim CEO of the company. And 20% of my day was either prospecting in the accounts where I had relationships or picking up the phone, trying to get people to come over and work. And I'm like, I don't have anybody that you know can do this for me. I'm doing do it myself. But I, I think you're right, Michael. We've put the onus on other outsource functions. And Mark can speak intimately to this because he just came from the business of outsourcing PDRs. So I don't want to ruin that business model. But um, it, it really does make the reps a lot less likely to fish for themselves. But a lot of that comes from this whole concept of blitz scaling companies, doesn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. And they get all that VC money. And then the VCs say, you've got to blitz scale now, blitz scale, 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 scale. And therefore to scale the concept of a salesman sitting in his office, phoning people, booking his own appointments, that doesn't speak to the VCs of scale. True. Actually, the VCs go, well, hold on a minute. What about good old fashioned Frederick Winslow Taylor? One guy gets the appointment, the other guy passes the appointment on, the other guy prepares the call. Let's get loads of automation and machines, and that will scale. That will create mass infiltration into the market. And so what you get is these companies, in the name of, in inverted commas, scaling, they're under pressure to spend money. You know, we've got clients, Mike, they are under pressure to spend their investors' money, aren't they? 100%. Like enormous pressure to spend investors' money. So they because they're under so much pressure to spend the money, which is bonkers, but it, it's true, they just go out, they hire a million SDRs, they buy loads of equipment, where actually they could probably just as easily save millions, hire a handful of really classy salespeople who could prospect their way through the problem. And we see that a lot, where it's, it's just bonkers numbers thrown at a problem that doesn't need half of them. Agreed. Jonathan, I think that... Um... The, the market has created some of that as well in a couple of ways. Certainly how much assets under management these VC firms have and how much dry capital they still have, even if they're acquiring everything they can find. So that's part of it. The other part of it is, as Paul mentioned, the, the talent base, the, you know, the fact that the talent is stretched so thin. And Michael, as an example, you know, you may have the acumen to be able to be an amazing sales rep and also an amazing prospector as well. But there's not that many, especially young sales reps out there that have that capability. 
So part of it is you can kind of blame the VCs, but part of it we can also say, you know, hey, they're you know perfect example of these PE firms. There are smart people like Paul that are figuring these things out every day and saying, I can't hire enough Michael prices right now, so I'm going to split the capabilities into two or three. I think the market drives a lot of that as well. Michael and I call that the talent trap. It's entirely that. There's no other way to put it. We call it the talent trap where you're reliant on, and as awful as it sounds, and we've done it in our own business, where we, we had a moment of reckoning four or five years ago now, where we realized that we could never achieve goals that we wanted to achieve because we were so reliant on hiring talented people. And that was becoming incredibly painful. And those talented people were holding us to ransom constantly. And it became a painful business to manage. And we actually invested heavily in technology and automation and outsourcing. So here's one. I think my favorite chapter in the book is chapter two, actually, where you talk about velocity and grit. Ah, yes. I wanted to talk about this. So, yeah, well, let's talk about that for a bit. I just thought that was absolutely fab. And it's interesting about the velocity and grit bit. So just talk to me about that for a minute, if you would, guys, please. Because I thought that was a fabulous chapter. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in real quickly on that. In general, that's another thing that we see with younger sales reps out there. You know, as Paul mentioned, they're better educated. They're smarter than we were at the same part of their lives. But few of them have the grit and the velocity that individuals like Paul and I brought to the market. Now, Paul generated his grits on the streets of South Philly. I was a little more rural, living about 50 miles away from him, but you know, but we got there the same way. So it really comes down to if you look when you're looking to hire, you know, those are two of the strongest capabilities I look for in a sales rep. Someone has to be able to be efficient. You know, there are some people very uh, productive at the end of the day, um, successful individuals that don't know how to do things in the pace that people like Paul and I have done things over our career. So velocity and speed is important. And then grit is everything. I mean, we, we know sales, you know, we know how many times you're going to get knocked on your tail in any given day. You know how many times you're going to think you're winning a deal. And especially when you're young and, and less prepared, you're going to learn the hard way that you had no clue. You thought you were winning for all the wrong reasons. The grit to be able to come back and be as productive and efficient and committed and motivated after that, that's grit. Yeah, you know, we, we did follow different paths, but I, I look back and, you know, I try to give my kids an easier path and spoil them so they don't have to go through what I went through. But I still try to teach them some of these, you know, velocity and grit concepts and ideas. And I think when you get into some complex processes or you know, you're being told no all the time. And, you know, it's a tough profession, let's face it. Uh, you could be a straight A student, uh, you know, from an Ivy League school and, you know, just fall apart, you know, in the heat of battle. So I always used to try to surround myself with kind of A students from B schools, right? So you didn't go to the Ivy League or the Oxford or whatever, but you went to a school, but you made the best of it and you had the grit, you had the velocity, you made things happen. I always would prefer to have those types of folks in the foxhole with me than the uber smart got a perfect score on my ACT or SAT or whatever it is, college test. Because sometimes, you know, there's not a, you know, a method to follow that's by the book. You got to throw the book out once in a while. So I, I really do think that's important. Do I think that's a very interesting comment? And I wholeheartedly agree with you. But when you look at a lot of the big corporates, 
SAP, Microsoft, Oracle, IBM, whatever, they are full of very well-educated people from very middle-class backgrounds, I think. And it surprises me how magnetized they are to that. And when we as recruiters meet them post that initial graduate program, we find the number one thing they are lacking as candidates. We look straight at them and just go, not gritty, not dirty, not tough enough. Do you know, I saw an interview, there's an English boxer that you might not have heard of called Chris Eubank, who was a fabulous boxer in his time. Uh, and his son is now a boxer. And there was an interview between him and his son. And he said to his son, you'll never be as good as me. And his son's going, what are you on about? And he said, well, listen, I grew up with absolutely nothing. I had nothing. The only way that I could pay for anything was to win fights that were cash only. He said, I'm now really wealthy and I've given you everything. And you just don't have to want it as much as I had to want it. I couldn't fail, but you can. And I think that was a very good summary of what we're talking about here, actually. But that comes back to the why, doesn't it? Yes. You know, I grew up on the mean streets of North Leeds, which, for those of you who don't know, is a really nice part. <laughs> um, and I was spoilt stupid. But I still had a big enough why. And the why comes for different people from different places. You know, you can get a kid that goes to a top public school. His father spent hundreds of thousands of pounds on his education. Sometimes they've got a bigger point to prove because they've got to prove to themselves that they're the guy. There's different motivations with different people, it, providing it gives them grit. My question around the concept of grit is, I used to agree that hard work and grit was it. And I mean, when I came out of university, literally, if you'd said to me, listen, you can earn five grand by walking through that brick wall and then jumping off that building and covering yourself in cow dung, I'd have gone, right, yeah, I came, right, yeah, whatever, I'm in. Give me a go, give me a chance, I'm in. Make 200 calls tomorrow. Yeah, really, 200 calls, will, will that work? Yeah, right, I'm in. Well, you've got to stay in the office till 3 a.m. Yep, fine, I don't care, just give me money. And now what we've got is a group of people with different value systems, whether that's worse or better, I don't know. But what I do wonder is, and Mike and I just read Tech Powered Sales on the, the last section of shows by Tony Hughes, and I know you allude to this a little bit at the back end of the book, but I do wonder if actually velocity and grit will be replaced by determinedly lazy. Well, you know, Jonathan, there, there's a couple of things to pull out of that. One is, to your point, grit isn't only for the poor and individuals. You know, you can, you can have lots of grit and grow up very wealthy. You could go to an Ivy League school and still have the grit for exactly the reasons you described. Yeah your why, like, why are you doing this? And why were you at that Ivy League school playing baseball or football when you were three inches shorter than anyone else with your position and 40 pounds lighter? So there's grit in all kinds of places. And, and it really does come down to the why, you know, and the, just the concept of, you know, you can tell for the most part, if you do the right type of evaluation of a new hire, you can learn pretty quickly how gritty they are. And, and you certainly know for sure within the, the first three to four months of that person coming on board because, you know, gritty individuals figure things out. They don't come to you with every single question. Gritty individuals come in with energy that shows that they want to prove something. And, and that can happen at any social economic level. To your point of, of the lazy, the lazy happens in every level as well. You know, we, um, we all have our relationships, especially in our industry of individuals who have made a little money 
and are not the same person they were before. They become very lazy. Uh, they become less productive. And then you can have, you know, a close friend like I'm fortunate enough to have, like Paul Melchiori, who, you know, keeps achieving more things and, and greater things. And his energy level doesn't slow down one bit. And it doesn't slow down one bit if he and I are working on a business opportunity or whether it's a personal thing that he's helping me with or we're helping each other with. So you can tell these things, the energy and the why to me is even more important than the actual CV and background that somebody brings to the table. What I'm wondering is, as the salesperson of the future really kicks in with this huge tech stack behind them, data, software, AI, I think the ones that will actually really make it will be the ones who are the most determined to be lazy. And what I mean by that is they'll be the ones who will get their head the most round leveraging what's around them so that they don't actually have to be as gritty and hardworking as probably we were. They'll look back at us and go, these guys used to make 100 calls a day. I'm not doing that. And they will be gritty in their pursuit of being lazy and using the kit. Yeah. Lazy is a bad word, but I think I call that Johnny working smart or being creative in your approach. It doesn't, you know, just working hard doesn't get you to the finish line. Right. And, and unfortunately it's, I feel bad for the people who have velocity and grit without the kind of intelligence or EQ because they never really achieve the full goals. They'll, they'll win some things. And we've all hired them. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Exactly. Yeah, it's heartbreaking because you, and, and by the way, I give those people second, third, fourth chances and people say, you got to get rid of her. You got to get rid of him. And I'm like, no, no, let's, let's give him another chance because you feel so much. Yeah. Cause they're going to maybe get, you get lucky. You know? But uh, I agree. I think that the today, you know, selling is really much more scientific than it was artistic back in the day. And I think if you had velocity grit, and you worked really hard and you did a few smart things, you know, you, you would be successful. Today, you got to be pretty smart and you got to leverage the tech stack. You got to understand different creative ways to get the job done. And if you just work hard and, and you're gritty, you might be running into a wall and, and that's not good either. So I think it's more working smart than being lazy because there's a lot of lazy reps and those are the ones that are going to be unsuccessful no matter what you do. Yeah, I, I get it a lot because Mike and I use a lot of tech. People go, wow, I love that approach. It's amazing how you kind of got through to me and you've done that. And my stock answer is, I joke, I say, well, it's because I'm lazy. <laughs> and they go, well, it's kind of working for you. And I go, yeah, well, you know, it's because I don't want to have to do as much work as I used to. <laughs> so I kind of just use the tools. But I think, like you say, in reality, it's just about being smarter and driven to find better ways. And that's the grit in and of itself, rather than the grit that we used to have, which was when I first met Mike, Mike could quite comfortably make 150, 200 calls in a day. Bang, bang, bang. And he'd smash the receiver into the cradle just to let everybody know he was in the room. <laughs> that was me. So chapter five talks about creativity and problem solving. And is this the chapter where you talk about storytelling in it? It is, isn't it? And you talk about selling through metaphor. Yeah. You know, people, they relate better to pictures, to stories, you know. And so I think it's just as simple as, what do people relate to and what is easier for people to understand? 
And I think if you're just spewing out your features and functions and why you're better or worse, you know, some people may understand that, but a majority of the buyers are not that bright. So you really have to kind of paint the picture for them. And a picture is worth a thousand words. I didn't make that up, but you, you know what I'm saying there. So I think the people who I've found to be some of the best salespeople, and I don't know if the stories are actually accurate. They probably make half the stuff up, but it sounds so compelling. And, you know, they talk about some of their clients and how they've gotten people promoted. And, and this is the kind of things that people relate to. And, and sometimes that level of creativity, the storytelling, you know, being able to bring it all together for the prospect, that kind of then sometimes makes the difference. And I think, uh, you know, some of the best successful reps, that's all they do, man. They're just storytellers and they're so good at it. Human beings have been gathered around fires listening to stories for millennia, haven't they? That's right. <laughs> yes. The beauty of a good story or a good metaphor is you're mainlining into people's unconscious minds. Yep, exactly. I know I'm going to get shot down by at least two of you, maybe three. <laughs> we'll find out. But I have found in my engagement with the people that I deal with that the stories just don't seem to sink in as much as the facts. But I think that's more about your personal authenticity, Mike. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. It feels inauthentic to you to tell a story. And so you would feel inauthentic telling a story. You're not that guy. And so being factual and clear is authentic with you and your customers by the authenticity of you being to the point. Do you know, somebody said this about me years ago. They called me the Price of Tron 3000. I spoke to, you know, DC, Johnny, I met him this yeah. morning. He actually said, hello, Price of Tron. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a machine. Yeah. It was funny. I also like chapter six about resilience. Mm. I think that, you know, is super important in salespeople. Just couldn't be more so. Probably even more so today than, than grit and velocity, because as you said, not that they're going away, but they're maybe being replaced with not lazy, but working smarter. I think the resilience part, and, and I've always argued, you know, are leaders born or are they built? You know, resilience to me is also one of those things you know, is this something that's in your DNA? You know, are, are you built to be resilient? And, and gosh, I mean, if you think about the last couple of years, what's all been thrown at people, some people are coming out of it a lot better and a lot of folks uh, obviously not as well. So, and I think the difference there is being resilient. And, it, and this is still a tough profession, right? The expectation levels are high. There's venture money everywhere. The immediate gratification is required. Do you think selling cloud-based software in the IT industry is a difficult profession? I've never seen it as easy as it is now. We've even had people say to us, it's easy at the moment. One of my clients said to me, I met him for lunch. I went, how's business going? He went, I've got to be honest, Mike, it's the easiest I've ever known it. Well, the only thing to counter that, Mike, is, you know, if you look at the data on sales reps meeting quotas, and right now, you know, 60% or less you know, sales reps in the SaaS space hitting a quota in every given year. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I can't counter a point. Somebody's saying it's easy to sell now. That's great. But is it easy in a way that they are blowing away their quota and their targets? Yeah. So there's two dynamics, right? I guess at the company level and the CRO level, it is right now, we are blowing away estimates quarter after quarter in most SaaS businesses, so that's easy. However, we're also trying to bring in more and more sales reps and giving them higher quotas, and hitting a quota at the sales rep level is becoming less easy. So there's a little bit of that dynamic going on, but it's great to hear people describing it being the easiest it's ever been. 
that's a, it's a good sign for our economy. Well, we do have incredible tailwinds in our macro environment. I think, Mark, is what you're getting at. And yeah, if you're in the right company environment and you know this whole movement, super movement to SaaS and cloud-based software and all these industries, it is hard to kind of miss some of that tailwind. But as we all know, you know, sometimes the wind dies down and things will get tougher. This market won't last as uh, frothy as it is forever. And then you'll see the difference between the folks who are just in positions to be successful and are just there because of and the ones that, you know, are consistently successful. So I think right now you're right. It's it's hard to not be either 60 percent or 100 percent a quota, even if you just show up or maybe even if you don't show up today. Uh, but I, I could assure you that won't last forever. No, there are certain companies now where I think it truly is easy. But I do think there are also others where it's not. As we said, the, a lot of those companies where it's not, they're in a terrible talent trap, I think, because a lot of the talent is getting vortexed into a small handful of organizations. And Mike and I see that the AWS, et al., Salesforce, the, the amount of hiring they're doing, and you can't blame a sales guy for going, oh, right, hold on. 130k base and some stock upon joining and you're going to give me which account oh that account right okay and okay right that sounds good to me and they know they can go and earn, earn money for a couple of years you can't blame them what will be interesting is and i hope it's a long way away is when the market has its little correction which at some point it will what will happen to a lot of those salespeople, many of whom were very talented before the market got this good but will have not sharpened their saw for a long time, I think, and will wake up one morning and go, what do you mean the customer doesn't want to see me? Completely agree. Completely agree. What do you mean he says he's got no money? I agree 100%, Johnny. And that, I think, will become an incredibly interesting time for a lot of salespeople. Mike and I were, were around 2002. We were around in 2009, and we saw that then. But I think that this time round, the correction that will come I think this will be more brutal than we've ever seen on certain people because they will actually wake up and realize, oh, I didn't realize this was what selling was all about. Well, most of these folks have not been through a downturn, right? So if you think the last downturn was 2008, and that was primarily, I mean, we felt it here, you felt it across the pond because it was kind of a financial crisis. Obviously, the tech crisis of 0102, you know, we felt, you know, on the tech side. But for the most part, you think about most of these sales reps that are in their 20s and maybe even 30s, they've never experienced anything negative. And then they look at the stock market and Robin Hood and whoever, they just think everything's just going to keep going up. <laughs> they think every investment they make is all right. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully at my advanced age, it lasts another five to 10 years. I'm good. I'm out. But uh, for, <laughs> for the 20 and 30 somethings, there is going to be a day of reckoning. And uh, it's not going to be pretty. In fact, it may be the ugliest of the journeys that we've been on. And, and therefore, the folks who have that resiliency will definitely stand apart because there is going to be this correction, if you will. And, and those folks that just sat back and rode the wave, when that wave stops, it, it becomes difficult. So it'll be a, a sad day when it happens. I hope it's a long way away. Absolutely. Yes, me too. But you know, in terms of me, by the way, Johnny, I'm I'm just sort of wrapping up because I've got my questions answered here. You may have 101 more. <laughs> you, you've asked the ones I wanted to ask. Do you know, I th I've got to say, overall, what I thought about the book was they, it struck me as almost like memoirs and sound advice from two people who've had terrific track records 
who are both very capable salespeople. And Johnny said something in the show today, actually, which I'm going to steal his thunder. Thanks. It's almost like, if it were possible, I'd go through the book, highlight some things that you just sort of, I'm not criticising when I say this, but glossed over a little bit because there's so much in it. I wish you'd put highlights on certain... Yeah, and you should say to the new salesperson, right, this bit about pipeline, get a tattoo of that on your hand. (laughs) This bit about grit, get a tattoo of that on your hand. Because there was some stuff in there and I thought... These two fellas have obviously sold a lot of stuff and I thought overall I liked it for that. I thought it was good. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, we appreciate it, guys, and we love talking about the book club. <laughs> <laughs>